Thank you, Pastor Todd. Good morning, church. Um, any parents, if you have kids up through fifth grade and you'd like them to go to some age-specific teaching, feel free to take them out now and there'll be somebody on the patio uh, waiting for you. Uh, everybody else, this morning uh, we will be together in the book of Galatians, this time in the sixth chapter, the sixth chapter. So if you would turn with me there. And if you don't have a Bible underneath the seat in front of you, there are some blue ones. And in those Bibles, you can turn to page 567. Page 567. If you're new to the Bible, you'll notice there are some large numbers. Those are the chapter numbers. And we will be looking at chapter 6, verses 1 through 5 together this morning. In our study through the, the book of Galatians this fall, much of the time we have spent plumbing the depths of theology. The doctrine of Galatians is deep and rich. And at times it's complex. Chapter after chapter after chapter has argued that people are made right with God not by what they do, but rather by what Christ has done. And we've seen very, very clearly together that our works cannot save. God has always operated on grace. And grace has always been mediated through faith. We've been encouraged in Galatians to think deep thoughts about God. And these deep thoughts, these doctrines of grace, we really could study for the rest of our lives and never exhaust all there is to learn about what God has already done for us in Jesus Christ. But make no mistake, the, the first several chapters of Galatians are there in order to help us rightly understand how to live in the last three chapters. You see, doctrine is always practical. Doctrine is always designed by God to instruct us as to how to think about Jesus in everyday life and how to live for Jesus in everyday life. Doctrine ought to always lead to more godly behavior and more white-hot worship of our Savior. In other words, deep theology, the kinds of things we've spent most of the fall together on, is for the street. It's not merely for the academy. It's not only for this tiny little time out of the week that we are here gathered together on a Sunday morning. It's for all the time. It's for every day. That's why our passage today, Galatians 6, 1 through 5, is entirely about how to live a life of grace. Sometimes we can slip into thinking that if we just have the right thoughts about God, that that's good enough. That if we can just get our, our, our doctrine correct and put it in nice little neat boxes and put it up on the shelf and know the right words and how to use them at the right time, then that's all that God wants. But church, doctrine's great purpose is to create a foundation for beautiful life. For life that's been designed by God and demonstrates the fact that Jesus is alive and well. 
doctrine is for life. So, when we come by grace to believe the biblical gospel and we're united to Christ, then that gospel doctrine we've come to understand will, of course, produce gospel living. And if that's true for us individually, then it is also true for us corporately. One way to think about that is to think about the church. And when we use the word church today, let's think not about all Christians everywhere, but about these Christians here, about our particular responsibilities to one another. When we think about the church, the church is designed by God to be an an ecosystem of a beautiful gospel culture in which we can look around and see the ways in which individuals being changed by Jesus is impacting how we all interact with each other. And as that begins to happen, then guess what happens for the church in our witness before the world? Friends, one of our greatest apologetics as we live in Tempe, Arizona, is the fact of our shared life together, lived under God's grace for Jesus as we help each other. What we believe is to translate into how we live. That's what our passage is about this morning. As we turn to Galatians 6, you'll notice that this is all about being a church where the gospel is put on display, empowered by the Holy Spirit, built on gospel doctrine. But it's not so much the the kinds of passages we've been accustomed to in Galatians. It's not really deep, complex, intense theology. Instead, it's just the gospel applied to how we live everyday life. Peter Vargas, who's a newer church member and is quickly becoming a good friend, is going to come read for us. Galatians 6, 1 through 5. Good morning. Please follow along. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Amen. Thank you, brother. One of the items on the uh, members' meeting agenda tonight is... Uh, that Peter is going to be sharing his own uh, testimony about what the Lord's been doing in his life as a newer member of Church on Mill. I hope you'll come tonight to hear it. I know it will be an encouragement to you. Now, uh, I haven't heard any of you say this this morning. So if you've said this, then God might be talking to you, but I'm not. Okay? Are we all clear? All right. Have you heard or have you personally said these words? Don't judge me. 
like in the last hour. It seems like that's a sentence that is uttered all the time. If by that we mean Christians should not look down on non-Christians and hold them accountable for not living a Christian life. If that's what we mean when we say, don't judge me, then by all means, keep saying, don't judge me. That's exactly right. However, that's not how I hear the word or the sentence used. Usually it's used by Christians to each other, meaning something more like this. Stay out of my life. Mind your own business. Church, if that's what you mean when you say, don't judge me, then you ought never say that sentence again. Because that is incredibly ignorant of what the Bible teaches. There are many, many passages, not just Galatians 6, that say we in fact are to be in each other's lives in such a way that we're helping one another in our own struggles with sin. You know, the corollary to don't judge me is I am not my brother's keeper. And both of those simply do not represent the Christian life. We, in fact, are our brother's keepers. It is our responsibility as brothers and sisters in Christ, particularly brothers and sisters in Christ who have made a commitment to each other in a local church. It is our responsibility to lovingly watch over each other's lives. One of the great distinctives of a church with a gospel culture is that there will be a robust web of relationships where members are deeply involved in each other's lives. And when, not if, when we get tripped up in sin. Did you find yourself in the last seven days doing something that surprised you? You didn't think through it real carefully ahead of time. You didn't nurture a temptation. It just kind of seemed to come out of nowhere. Well, friends, that happens to all of us. And our responsibility to one another in Christ is to help each other when those kinds of things happen. At times, we all fall into sin. Some examples. And no, I haven't been following you around and watching this week. All right? But here are some examples. A mom erupts in an answer toward her kids, spewing words that will not be easily forgotten. A brother with a chronic illness is so overcome with sadness that he drinks to the point of blacking out just to try to get away from the pain. A teenager finds herself filled with envy and resorts to gossip and slander to try to feel better about herself. A husband is innocently on a sports webpage reading about a football game when an image of a woman almost naked comes up trying to sell toothpaste. And the next thing he knows, he's in two hours of pornography. 
Brothers and sisters, when we as Christians are caught into sin, our responsibility is to lean in. It is to love one another enough to try to help. Some of us will be tempted when those things happen and we know it to ignore and minimize it. We'll we'll just want to turn away and pretend we never saw. Others of us will be tempted, will have a propensity to magnify it and gossip and say, look how bad that one is compared to this one. But neither of those represent what God is calling us to as brothers and sisters in Christ. So when we see a family member, and by family member I mean a brother or sister in the Lord, when we see a family member tripped up in sin, then in gentleness, humility, and love and care, brothers and sisters in Christ go and restore one another. That's what all the deep doctrine of the earlier parts of the book of Galatians have taught us. Now, if you look there in your Bible at verse 1, you'll notice the word restore is used. It says, you who are spiritual, restore. Restore is not a, a common word in the New Testament. But outside the Bible... In ancient secular literature, the word was used a lot. And one of the most common usages of the word, restore, it is that it was used to describe what a doctor would do with a broken leg or a dislocated elbow. So to, to put a bone back in place or to slide an elbow that's been dislocated back to where it belongs is to restore one to health. It might hurt, but it's necessary. The pain will be temporary. The healing will be much longer. Now this kind of bone-setting, health-nurturing work is the work of the church when it comes to our spiritual lives. And friends, notice as you look at verse 1, who is supposed to do that work? It says, you who are spiritual. Now, does that mean that there's like 10 of us who are super Christians? We've got capes. On the back is a big J for Jesus. And we're the ones who have attained the great ability to fly in when there's a problem and fix it. And the rest of you minions, you aren't spiritual. You think that's what Paul meant? Nope. Friends, the phrase, you who are spiritual, simply means those of you who have the Spirit. Those of you who have the Spirit. So, friend, if you've been saved by God, you know Jesus Christ, then you are spiritual. And the work that we do in restoring one another is for all of us. Now, certainly if you're earlier on in your Christian journey, you won't do the restoring perhaps as well as somebody who's been doing it a long time. But you've got to start somewhere. And you're not ever going to get the cape 
and feel like you've arrived. The work of restoring is what we all do. That's why in our proposed membership statement of fellowship, one of the commitments that we would make to each other should you choose to adopt it speaks directly about this. You'll see it here on the screen. It says, we will exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other. And if occasion requires, we will humbly, I should say plead. You can say please when you do it if you'd like. We will humbly plead with one another to cease in sinful behavior and encourage the confession of sin to one another. Church, your pastors, and by the way, Tens of thousands of churches for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years have believed a church will more faithfully live out Galatians chapter 6 if you make a commitment to do so. And that's the function of a membership statement of faith and a membership statement of fellowship. Tonight in our members meeting, we'll have an open-ended, frank, honest discussion about what it would look like to transition to being a church that does that. I hope you'll come back tonight as we talk about it. In the church, we labor to restore one another. And notice the verse says that we must do so gently and that we must do so carefully. Why? Well, friend, because the truth is You have not been in some miraculous way inoculated to the very thing that you might be going to seek to restore someone from. To put that more simply, you might be restoring in the morning and be needing restoring in the afternoon. And so we do this gently, humbly, graciously, lovingly, and never, ever, ever pridefully. No follower of Jesus is immune from any sin. Every one of us has the potential to get caught up in any and every transgression. The moment you think you're above something, you are almost certainly guaranteeing you will fall in that So we go to one another in love. We go in grace. We speak truth and we do so with tenderness. Now all of that is just verse 1. This is a really, really great paragraph. You'll notice as we look from verse 1 to verse 2 that what's happened is we've gone from a, a specific example in verse 1, to the larger principle in verse 2. Maybe it would be helpful if I read that verse again. It says, Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Friends, the assumption behind or underneath this verse is quite simply that everyone has burdens. Would you take a moment and look around? No one you see is without a burden. In fact, 
No one, you see, is without many burdens. No one has an easy life. Friend, there is no such thing. We live in a fallen world where calamities take place and where human beings cause calamities. No one has it easy. This is a fallen world full of sinners. We are all burdened. Sure, our burdens are not identical in their type or in their degree or in how long they last. But the presence of burdens is universal. We all have burdens. If you're having a moment in time in which you don't feel particularly burdened, hold your breath because it will not last long. Even spiritual giants like the Apostle Paul. So, the man through whom, by the grace of God and the Spirit of God, wrote Galatians. Even Paul had burdens. Let me show you a couple examples. In the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it'll be on the screens, listen to what Paul says. For while we were still in this tent, now he wasn't camping, he was talking about his body, the body. Our bodies are like tents. For while we were still in this tent, we groaned, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. In the context, Paul is specifically talking about physical trials and the way in which the things he faced had caused physical harm. Burdens. Now, in the same letter, in chapter 1, he says this, For we don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened. Now listen to the rest of the sentence. Beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Friend, the greatest missionary who has ever lived who undoubtedly had a tremendously dogged strength in his personality, has just said that he was bearing a burden so severe that in some ways he wanted to die. In the same letter, in chapter 7, verse 5, he says, Even when we came to Macedonia... Our bodies had no rest. We were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. He's saying circumstantially, there were hard things all around us. And inside, the effect of all of that was producing, was causing a fear. So much so that I could not bear it anymore. I wonder, does that surprise you that the Apostle Paul described parts of his life like that? Friend, I hope if you feel like a weak Christian and you look around and you think this appears to be working for everybody else, I am a puny and pathetic failure 
But I hope these couple of verses will be such a tremendous source of encouragement to you. The Apostle Paul was burdened to the point he wondered, can I go on? We all have burdens. Now, how does God resolve or help or aid burdens? Well, in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 5, he says, fighting without and fear within. But listen to what God does in verse 6. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. Church, as the world's most famous missionary, was beaten down, discouraged, and burdened, God saw. And God helped. How? He sent Titus. Beloved, the will of the Lord for Church on Mill is that we would be like Titus. That we would feel sent by God often to help each other to lighten each other's loads, to bear one another's burdens. Crucial to God's design for the Christian life is that it is not to be lived in isolation, insulation, independence. And to put it rather bluntly, it is not godly nor a sign of strength to bear your troubles alone. In fact, it is foolish, ungodly, and in the end, impossible. God has eased our greatest burdens in Christ quite precisely so that we can have the great privilege of bearing each other's burdens in Christ. The fact is, we need each other. As we are open about our difficulties, the body of Christ rallies around and lightens each other's loads. That is what church is. There's another spot in that membership statement of fellowship where we've tried to capture that. Let me read another sentence to you. It says, We will rejoice at each other's happiness and endeavor to bear each other's burdens and sorrows, always remembering to pray for each other. Church, these kinds of passages are everywhere in the Scriptures calling us as Christians to make the commitment to live these kinds of lives together. This great ministry of burden-bearing is, of course, a tremendous privilege. I mean, to be agents through whom God sends you and me to help each other. What a joy. What a privilege. Now, it's also true that burden-bearing is often incredibly mundane. It can feel really, really, really boring and repetitious. Delivering 
another meal. Listening to someone recount a particular struggle again. Texting yet another member who didn't show up today. Hosting GC again. I mean, you clean the house and then they dirty the house. And then you do it again and again and again. Delivering another book that you've purchased for someone else discouraged without any guarantee they're actually going to read it. Opening your home for yet another church member who's made terrible financial decisions and needs help to get back on their feet. Friends, burden bearing in the body of Christ is a privilege, but very often it is not flashy. It doesn't feel like I'm changing the world. But friends, a whole church full of hundreds of people who take this kind of life seriously? Imagine the witness we would have in this very dark place if the light was shining that brightly. So a question that I think naturally arises out of this passage is, well, How in the world do we ever actually maintain that kind of burden-bearing lifestyle? I mean, like, once every six months, can I take an hour or two and do something for somebody else? Yeah, we could all do that. But, But what about every day? What about it being the normative thought God, today, who would you have me to help to ease a burden as part of the life of Church on Mill? I read my Bible. I pray. I have my quiet time. But then I'm not done with God. God, what would you have me to do toward a fellow brother or sister in Christ today? How do we actually learn to live that way and to do it with joy? Not with a sense of, I'm sure glad that church has me because there's so many morons here and I have my stuff together. That church is so much better off because I'm here as a burden bearer, looking down on everybody else, helping them with their little things that they can't fix. Friend, do you see that that's the temptation? if you start doing the work of burden-bearing, the temptation will be to look around and look down. But the way we actually learn to live a life of burden-bearing is not to look down on others, but to look up at Jesus. You see, Jesus is the ultimate burden-bearer. In 1 Peter chapter 2, it says, He himself bore our sins in his body on a tree. Friends, Jesus quite literally bore the burden, the crushing weight of our sin. A burden no sinner can bear in order that we would be freed up through the Spirit to bear each other's lesser burdens. 
We've been freed from the Old Testament law by Christ in order to come under the law of Christ. That is the law of love. Loving one another the way Jesus has loved us. Looking to Him as the one who bore the ultimate burden so that we, through Him, can bear each other's lesser burdens. I wonder, Christian, if you would ask God right now to help you, before you leave this room, notice, know of, somebody else in the church who's weighed down with a burden they ought not carry alone. And I wonder if you would take seriously this passage and commit to, by God's grace, addressing and helping with that burden this week. Who in this room could use help with an upcoming bill that you simply don't see how you're going to pay? Who in this room is sick and this week needs help running errands? Because if they run those errands, they're not going to be able to do anything else. Who in a couple of weeks will face Christmas alone? There shouldn't be anybody sitting alone in their home on the 25th. Who needs to go for a long walk and not be told what to do, but just to be heard? Friends, the room is full of burdens because the room is full of people. May we help each other bear these burdens. Determine now that by relying on God's power, you will be a joyful burden bearer this week. Now again, as we venture in and start seeing that this is in fact the life God calls us to as Christians, as we commit to verse 1 and verse 2, then there is a particular danger or temptation or problem that creeps in. And that's what verses 3, 4, and 5 are about. And probably the most important thing I'll say to you today If you forget everything else, I hope you remember this. The way we interact with others is governed by how we think about ourselves. Let me say it again. The way we interact with others is governed by how we think about ourselves. That's why verse 3 begins with the word for. It says, for if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. Friend, what can happen as we begin to bear each other's burdens is, unfortunately, these little dark cobwebs, the little nasty spots in our hearts that we try to hide, that maybe even we're not aware are there, that little nastiness will kind of rear its head. And there will be a moment in which you're helping somebody with something and you think, gosh, they are sure better off with me. And I would never get in that situation. And 
gosh, they look like they have it together, but what a hot mess. Thankfully, I got this. That temptation towards arrogance, pride, superiority, can come out and ought to. You see, if you think you are all that, friend, you will never know the privilege of a life of consistent burden bearing. Because your smugness will overtake you. And you won't continue to do it. If your opinion of yourself is too high, you'll never stoop so low as to consistently help others with their struggles. That kind of pride and arrogance and superiority is like injecting poison into the gospel culture of a church. Superiority is the great enemy of burden-bearing. It'll separate us from giving and receiving the love of God through the care of fellow church members. One of the great things God's done in my life personally the last several years as I've dealt with an autoimmune disease is that I've come to see there were ways in which I thought, I got this. A particular moment a couple of years ago, uh, we, we moved to be closer to the church after about a year uh, into the, my diagnosis. Um, if you get a really terrible disease, don't decide you're going to move. All right? But I can't seem to get past living life with the pedal all the way down. And so we did. And then we were filled with things we were supposed to do that I just couldn't do. So one of the great problems with lupus is that you're not supposed to be in the sun. The sun's one of the very worst things. And the good thing is, I live in Phoenix. (laughs) So we had a fence in our backyard that needed to be painted. And um, you can't paint very well in the dark, and I'm not supposed to be outside in the sun. And so um, I am becoming like, if I was to take my shirt off, you could see right through me like translucent whiteness, because I'm not supposed to be outside. But graciously, a young couple in our church heard of the need to paint the fence, and they came over to do it. And so I'm inside, and they are outside, and literally all they have to do is put a, put a, put a thing in a bucket and then go like this. It's not hard. And I found myself as I'm sitting inside looking out at that, feeling absolutely humiliated. And so, not because they needed the help, but because I couldn't stand it. I kept going out. And like, do you need anything? I'm looking in the bucket. Are you, is your arm getting tired? Like, could I relieve you? And finally, the woman looked at me and said, Chuck, stop. Let us serve the church how we can so that you can serve the church how you can. And friend, it is not an understatement to say that sentence has changed my life. Because it exposed a a latent, 
deep-seated arrogance that I didn't know was there. One of the great dangers that we face is that sometimes we don't have enough burdens. Because what burdens do is show us we really don't have it all together and cannot live this Christian life on our own. Burdens are gifts from God designed to help other Christians experience the joy and privilege of helping us see the love of God. This is one of the things God does in our suffering. So, what these verses are saying is, sister, God is not all that impressed by your vast greatness. And brother, you really are nothing special. We all have struggles and burdens. And apart from Christ, we can do nothing. It's only when all of that is rightly situated in our minds that we're ready for a lifestyle of burden-bearing. Because burden-bearing is spiritually hazardous work. If you do it from a posture of self-sufficiency and arrogance, then you are pumping spiritual chemo into your body that will make you sicker and sicker. Rather than comparing ourselves with one another, sizing up who's got the bigger burdens, then we must simply think of ourselves less and think of each other more. And paradoxically, as we do that, then friends, our own burdens begin to get lighter because we're not just staring at them, moping, feeling sorry for ourselves. We're actually noticing oh, there are other people who also have difficult things. And I want to help them. Now, would you take a moment and look in your Bibles and compare verse 2 to verse 5. Now, just take a moment and read it to, to yourself. Verse 2 and verse 5. And here's my question for you. Did Paul reach, you know, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, brilliant, incredible. And then at the start of chapter 6, write verse 1. And then did he stop and say, gosh, I'm not feeling too good. I need a stupid pill. And did he take something that caused him to no longer makes sense. Because it seems like verse 2 says we're to bear each other's burdens. And then verse 5 says we're to bear our own burdens. And that's not like there's something in Genesis chapter 1 and then in uh, Revelation chapter 21 that don't seem like they go together. No, this is in the same paragraph. Which one is it? Am I supposed to help you with your burdens? Or are you supposed to take care of your own burden? Seems like he says both. 
And isn't that a contradiction? Well, friend, the word burden in verse 2 and the word for burden or load in verse 5 are not the same word. They don't mean the same thing. Burden in verse 2 is a word that we might describe as being a word about big weights one cannot carry by themselves. While the word in verse 5 is about a load that one ought to and in fact must carry on your own. You can think of it this way. Verse 2 is saying, We must carry each other's boulders. They're just too big. While verse 5 is saying, brothers and sisters, you've got to carry your own backpack. Nobody else can do it for you. So there's not in any way a contradiction here. You see, there's a delicate balance between what you and I are personally responsible for And what is the responsibility of the Christian community called Church on Mill to help each other? We mustn't expect brothers and sisters to carry more than they can. But we also mustn't expect each other to not feel personal responsibility. Do you see how the two must work together? And you'll notice verse 5 is written in future tense. It says, will. And very likely, what Paul's saying is he's pointing to the return of Christ. He's pointing to the last day when we will all face Jesus. Most principally, this probably means you can't obey God for me. We are all personally accountable and responsible to follow God, to do what He says. And in the last day, we will personally stand before God and give an account for how we've lived with our lives that God has given us. And friend, that day, there will be a single file line. None of us will stand in each other's places. We must personally be prepared in the grace of God to meet the Lord alone and give an account for how we dealt with the lives God gave us. You cannot do that for me, and I cannot do that for you. That is a backpack you must carry. But, everything else, everything else, is an opportunity for us to bear each other's burdens, and thus live out the love of Christ for each other. Now think of this incredibly practically for a moment. Friend, what may be a boulder for you today that you simply cannot carry by yourself, 10 years from now, may not be a boulder. And what is a boulder for one person may not be for another. All of us handle things differently. And the design of God is not 
that his church would be run in a set of professionalized programs with a gazillion things going all with nice little neat logos. But that there would be a web of relationships in which members know each other enough that we know when things are going on and we can differentiate by grace through the Spirit when someone needs help. And then we give it and we receive it. This is what church is. Now in conclusion, I've talked to Christians in the room a lot. Those of you who are non-Christians, is there anything here for you? Yes. Non-Christian. The invitation for you arising from these verses is to stop bearing the crushing burden of your sin. Jesus Christ came. He lived a perfect life. He died a sacrificial death. He bore on His body the burden of the failure of people to fully submit themselves to and enjoy God. And then He rose again, demonstrating that that sacrifice was acceptable to the Father. And so friend, today, without Christ, you are under the weight of the wrath of God. But in Jesus Christ, that weight can not only be lifted, but quite literally delivered off of you never, ever, ever, ever to return again. This is the gospel. This is grace. Won't you turn to Christ? Won't you come to Him? And Christian, the invitation here for us is to take our clues from Christ. To bear each other's burdens by means of the indwelling Spirit to the glory of God and the good of this family and our witness to the world. Life in the Spirit involves both a personal, loving care for fellow Christians and a faithful embrace of our own responsibility. And to be incredibly transparent as I close, I think, on a whole, we can still grow here. Some of us do this incredibly well. Others of us have not yet become accustomed to the sweet joy of burden-bearing. In many ways, we still live far too isolated lives in which we think we can handle our own burdens. And by seeking to carry boulders, friend, you're not getting anywhere. And you're cutting yourself off from the very means through which God wants to show His love to you. Church, who will you help by bearing a burden today? This is something you can do. Let's pray.